Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. My name is Pastor Ian. I am the pastor here at NC4, and it's great to be able to greet you, especially if you're here as a guest. Welcome. And everyone who's joining us online, including our Bethlehem campus, who's with us live right now. I have a very simple point for you today in my message, and it's this. Joy in the Lord is not just something we experience, it's something we do. Joy takes practice. And so we've been studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and we've been seeing that joy is at the heart of that letter to the Philippians, but joy, more than that, it's at the heart of the Christian life. So I hope as a result of this series, again, if you've missed any part of this series, some of this may not make full sense to you. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's all online. But I hope that you've come away from this series with a greater hunger for joy in the Lord a greater hunger to seek him, to rejuvenate your joy. And so we're concluding this series this morning, and I want to share with you about this art of joy and how the Apostle Paul tells us that we can practice it. So it's going to be something, I think, both challenging and encouraging to any of us who feel that we struggle to live in joy. And that's certainly me, and I know that that will be the case for virtually everybody. And so joy is the heart of the Christian life, and it's an art that can only be made flesh. Joy is an art that must be made flesh, but that can only be accessed through the proper disciplines and in the context of community. So I've told you what I'm going to say. Now I'm going to say it. All right. So our passage today is Philippians 3:17 up to 4:9 and when you get to this point in the letter just as Paul does in most of his letters he begins concluding in a very personal very practical way and something that he often tells the churches as he's doing that is to imitate him he says imitate me as i imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians you know I think a lot of times when we read that, it can seem a little bit arrogant. I don't know if you're ever writing to, you know, your disciple or someone that you're kind of mothering or fathering in the Lord, you're probably going to say, imitate Jesus before you're going to say, imitate me. Because we're all aware of the areas of our lives where we shouldn't be imitated. Some of them we're unaware of. (laughs) But... Paul's not saying that he's perfect. In fact, I think that the original audience knew exactly what was going on here, which is that he's setting up, they know exactly what kind of relationship this is. This is the relationship between a master and his students. A master of an art and his apprentices. And so this is the master. What we're seeing is Paul as a master of a certain art passing down his craft to his students. So Paul, we know where he got this from. He learned this art from Jesus. And so he's passing it down. And just as they imitate Paul, they are imitating Jesus. 
because Paul's imitating Jesus. And so this is the same way that all the great arts, all the great crafts and philosophies, all the great trades of the world have been passed down through history from generation to generation. Master craftsmen, master artists passing it down to their disciples, to their students, to their apprentices. And so from the way Jesus presents his art, this is what we can conclude. The first point here is that the joy of Christian life is an art to be mastered. The joy of Christian life is an art to be mastered. Over and over again, as we read scripture, we see that joy is what the Christian life looks like. It's the flavor, it's the substance, it's the, it's the adventure of the Christian life. It's this thing called joy. And it comes from Jesus's art, his art of being. Jesus didn't just offer us a, a new way of thinking or a new way of feeling or a new way of acting towards God. He offers us a new way of being. And that's what he's teaching us. And so the second point here is that there's no joy in art without the proper disciplines. There's no joy in art without the proper disciplines. And that can almost seem like an oxymoron. It can seem like a paradox the first time you hear that, because I think we think of joy and discipline as polar opposites. In fact, I think there's this kind of romantic myth of the artist that, you know, artists are these great geniuses that, that, you know, art just, and creativity just visits them and you either have it or you don't. And that's a complete myth. We think that bringing in discipline will kill the art, will kill the joy. But when you look at the lives of all the great artists, you see that that's a, that's not true. It's a complete myth. All the great artists through history have been people of great discipline in their art not necessarily in other areas of their lives, but definitely in their art. You can't have the one without the other. You can't have the joy without the discipline. And I'll give you an example. So recently, Johnny Kilman and I, we, we went to pick up a free Steinway piano that was offered on Facebook. So we drive out there, we pick it up, and, you know, Johnny, me, and the Holy Spirit lifted it. <laughs> I honestly don't know how it happened, but we got it in the house, all 700 pounds of it at least. And uh, it was really stupid, guys. Yeah. So it's there. It's in my house, okay? It's there. It's sitting there waiting to release the joy that it was made to give, all right? The problem is I can't access that joy because I quit piano lessons A few weeks in, at the age of 10 or whatever it was, I did not submit myself to the discipline of the piano. And therefore, it's sitting there containing a joy that I cannot access. All right? A discipline, you know, (laughs) I might want to sit there and play Rachmaninoff. I could get, you know, I could just put all my effort into it. I'll just, you know, I work myself all day. I, you know, work myself up all day. You know, I'm listening to music all week. I sit down and I just like, you know, I'm going to play it. And of course, it's not going to work because it doesn't matter how much effort I put in in the moment. If I haven't put that discipline within me, I cannot access that joy. A discipline, this is what a discipline is. A discipline is a practice that exists to enable you to do what you can't do by effort alone. 
A discipline exists to enable you to do something that you can't do by effort alone in the moment. And so you can't enjoy the art of the piano for yourself. You can enjoy other people playing it, but you can't access it yourself unless you submit yourself to the disciplines that it requires. And so it's the same with the Christian life. When Jesus was teaching his apprentices in John 15, 10 and 11, this is what he said. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so there's an art to this joy that Jesus has for us but you can't get it, you can't access it, you can't walk in it without the disciplines that he passed down to us. And so in our passage today, this is what Paul is teaching us about. He's teaching us how this happens, all right? So the next point is this. The art of Jesus is a life that must be made flesh. The art of Jesus is a life that must be made flesh. So we're going to read our, we're going to begin our passage today and we're going to take it chunk by chunk and delve into it bit by bit. Ephesians, sorry, Philippians 3, starting from verse 17. This is how Paul begins to conclude his, his letter. He says, join in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So, Paul's saying that to learn the art of joy, you need examples. You need practitioners around you as models that you can observe and imitate. You don't learn this art by yourself. And so you have to learn the art of Jesus' life from those who've been with him. I think it's because Jesus' art, it's not just a way of thinking or feeling or doing. It is a life. And it must be made flesh. And it makes me think of, you know, anytime, anytime we see Christianity not made flesh, we can sense that there's something off. I don't know if you've ever noticed with Christian leaders who who fall. I've had All of us, I'm sure, have had people that we've looked up to, that we've trusted, whether in person or, you know, via public ministry, that have fallen into sin and disgraced themselves and all those things. And so you're left with this kind of struggle in the aftermath, which is, okay, this person, their testimony has has fallen short, and yet I know that what they preached, what they wrote, what they, you know, what I was imitating in them is still true. And yet, you can know that mentally, theoretically, but I don't know about you, there's still a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth when I see that person's videos on YouTube or I see their books on my shelf still. There, there's, this, there's this conundrum, right? Because what's in the book is still true, And yet, the problem is, it wasn't made flesh. 
Christianity is not just a thinking thing that you, that you understand. It's something to be made flesh. And when it's not made flesh, there's something off. When God wanted to reveal himself finally and fully to humanity, he didn't just send another word through a prophet. He sent his word to become flesh. And so Christianity has to be embodied. And whenever we see it not embodied, we can sense that something's not right. And so, this is the next point, that the lack of proper discipline produces counterfeit arts. The lack of proper discipline produces counterfeit arts. To learn this art, you need his body. You need to keep your eyes on those who are making it flesh. And it's interesting to me, in conversation with with people in other religions sometimes, I've, I've come across this idea of, well, it would have been better if Jesus had written the New Testament himself. Then we could really trust it. Yeah? Why didn't Jesus leave us a book? Like all the other great prophets. Seems to be like a a gap in his resume almost, right? The greatest philosopher never to write a book. Why did he do that? Well, do you think maybe Jesus had a purpose in that? Jesus didn't leave us with a book. He left us with his body in his people. And he entrusted his body in the power of the Holy Spirit to capture all the truth that he wanted to communicate with the authority that was his own. He didn't leave us with a book. He left us with his body. And so if we want to practice his art, we need not only the book, we need the book, but we need the body also. It has to be made flesh. And so you need to keep your eyes on those who are making it flesh. And so I want to appeal, if there's anybody here, if there's anybody online or even watching this later on as a recording, if you're hearing this and you realize, you realize that you're, you're disconnected somehow from his body, I want to appeal to you like Paul does here. You need to be in, in physical proximity with people that you can observe who are living this out, who are making it flesh. You can't do it on your own. And so none of us can. It's not like a fault in any particular person. It's, it's because it's contrary to the way God's designed it. So don't just watch a service. Watch the saints. Don't just watch a service. Watch the saints. Now, it raises that question if we all need examples, if we all need models and practitioners in our lives to gain this art, then who are we learning from? Who is it in your life that you're looking to that you say, you know what? I see something in them because they've been with Jesus and I want to imitate what I see in them because I'm seeing a glimpse of Christ. And I, I, I need to clarify to you, don't just look up here. Don't look to the people with the platform necessarily. That's a question of gifting, all right? Look to very often where you're going to see the most living, breathing part. Because you only see me up here once a week doing this, all right? The people that you're doing life with, 
the, the, the more unassuming saints who are making this flesh day in and day out. This is why we all need the, the smaller units of, of, of gathering. We need to be in each other's homes. We need to be working together in different ways because that's where we see our lives playing out. That's where you see the substance of a person and how they react to situations. That's how you see a person loving their enemies. It's very easy to talk, for me up here to talk about loving your enemies. You need to be in a physical space with your enemies to be able to actually love them. Yeah? You don't see that unless you're, you're in each other's lives. All right? So as we follow Jesus, we're following his body as visible in his people, in his saints. And if you're from a Catholic background, I'm not talking about the people with the halos. I'm talking about (laughs) the whole of his people, which the Bible calls the saints. And so I want to encourage you. There's one other way that you can do this. All right. There's, there's the people that are living around us, but there's also the, the lives of the saints throughout history. And so I want to encourage you, make a habit at least once a year, read a Christian Uh, read a biography of a great saint of history. It's going to impact you. I've been massively impacted by reading the lives of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and and William Wilberforce and Oswald Chambers and C.T. Studd. And, you know, we could name all these people throughout history that show us a glimpse and you get to peer into their lives and it's powerful. So we can sum all this up with this next point, that artists, you all are the artists learning as apprentices under the master artist, Jesus. Artists mature within a community of practitioners. We mature within a community of practitioners. And I want to get into, there's some really fascinating brain science behind this. And I've mentioned this book, The Other Half of Church. This is, this is found in there as well. Our brains are designed in such a way that our identity as an individual, finds its place within a group identity. It's very hard to know who you are unless you know where you belong or to whom you belong. Our personal identity finds its place within our group identity. So our brains, there's a part of the brain, it's right behind your right eye, apparently. Our brains need to know who our people are in order for our character to be shaped. And along with joy, along with love, group identity, the way that we process group identity, that's located in the right brain. We've been talking about this recently in in previous messages. In our last series, we we went into depth on how the right brain, you've got the left brain and the right brain. There are these dual processors and everything first goes through the right brain. The right brain, that's the pre-conscious side of how you interpret the world. And when the right brain is not in order, if things like joy, love, group identity, if they're not in place, then what happens is your character growth gets stunted. And no matter how much left brain study, analysis, teaching you try and input, it, it, it doesn't have the soil to take root in and you don't grow. So psychologist Jim Wilder explains that Every sixth of a second, six times per second, your brain is trying to process the answer to who am I and what do my people do right now? How do my people act in this situation? You're all thinking that right now. 
okay? It's the only thing that's stopping you from just, you know, running around wild and crazy because you can tell that's not what people do here, okay? (laughs) If we were in a different style of church, you might observe that is what people do here, all right? Some of you would amen a little bit louder. Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. So our, our brains are processing the answer to that question six times a second, all right? And if you're not part of a community with a strong group identity, it means that you don't know how to behave. You don't know how to grow in your character. So what is our group identity? Well, as we carry on in this passage, verse 18, this is what Paul begins to put some definition around, okay? He says, so starting from verse 18, he says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I'm going to pause there. If you are a follower of Jesus, you belong to him. That's what it means to follow him. You give your life to him. You say, Lord, you are my Lord. You belong to him. And so what that means is you have a different identity. And that identity requires constant reinforcement. Constant repetition, reminding. Because sometimes we act as a people that's forgotten who we are. When we cease to act with love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, which is, I think, an expression of Jesus's own character. When we cease to live in that way, we're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting that we're a people called by his name, which is what Paul's talking about when he says we are citizens of heaven. He's talking to people in the city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony. They were very proud of being citizens of Rome. And yet Paul's saying, that is not your ultimate citizenship. In a way, we're all dual citizens. We're citizens within a human society, but ultimately our our truest group identity is in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And it goes beyond a city. It goes beyond a state. It goes beyond a nation. It goes beyond a culture or an ethnicity. It locates who we are in Jesus. And it combines us. It it, it groups us with everyone else who finds themselves in Jesus. And so living your life out of that identity, it produces a different set of priorities. This is what Paul's talking about. Some people live as enemies of of Jesus. They have their hearts, they have their minds set on earthly things, but we are citizens of heaven. We set our minds on Christ, on earthly, uh, on, on heavenly things. And so in the Messiah, our destiny is not destruction. So we don't tear down. 
we build up. In the Messiah, our God is not our stomach. So we don't live for consumption. We don't orient our lives around consuming the things of the world. There's something higher. In the Messiah, our glory is not in things that we should be ashamed of according to God's law. Our glory is in Christ. There is a specific character to his people. And when we stray from that, it produces counterfeits. And so we constantly need reminding of this. We need to be part of a community where we're constantly being reminded of who we are. My character, your character cannot be shaped on its own. You need community to remind you of who you are when you're going off course. And so we have a perfect example of this. We're going to carry on starting in chapter 4, verse 1. We have a perfect example of this. Okay, so Philippians 4, Paul begins, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, for whom you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, we're not exactly sure who he's talking to there, but maybe Timothy, help these women since, they've been content, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who, whose names are in the book of life. Now, you, you know, this is one of those situations where you wish you knew more of the backstory. We don't know exactly what was going on here, but we do know we've got these two prominent women within the church who are at odds over something, and it's important enough for Paul to mention it in a letter to the whole church. So we know it's having a ripple effect into the whole church. And these are not baby Christians. Paul says that they've contended with him for the gospel. They've, I think he's talking about they've suffered with him for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. And yet Paul says, my dear friends, you're not living out of who you are in Christ. You're not living out of who you are. And so what he does is he offers a healthy, loving correction to bring them back on course. If we want to grow as healthy, mature individuals in Christ, if we want to grow healthy and mature as a group, we not only need joy and love in our soil, we also need the pruning. We also need the healthy correction within our soil because we need each other to know who we are. And once again, I think you see this reflected in the science of our brains. This is really interesting to me. Neuroscience tells us that a person needs, get this, this is going to shock you a little bit and then I'm going to, I'm going to explain it, all right? Neuroscience actually tells us that we need a healthy sense of shame in order for our character to grow. And you say, well, Ian, shame is a really bad thing. We should never be ashamed. And, and what we're talking about when we say that, that's true, but we're talking about an unhealthy shame. We're talking about a toxic kind of shame, which unfortunately is mostly what we see. That kind of negative shame is a shame that says, you did it wrong, you messed up, therefore you are messed up. You are wrong. 
So it produces shame, but it's a kind of shame that disintegrates your identity because it doesn't, it doesn't tell you who you should be. It doesn't offer the corrective. It doesn't offer the way out. And so without a healthy sense of shame, our character cannot change. That's, that's a quote from, from Jim Wilder, psychologist. And so most of the time, I think when we see a brother or sister acting not out of who they are in Christ, I think a lot of times we, we want to err on the side of grace. And I think that's good. That's true. And so we say, well, you know, give them grace. It's just how they are. It's just who they are. And we need a dose of that, okay? We are called to bear with each other's faults and and carry each other's burdens, and we need the grace of Jesus. And yet, if we never are able to say to our brothers and sisters, you know what? You're, you're, You're doing something wrong here, and you're not acting out of who you are in Christ. What we're doing is, we're, we're, we're not allowing them, we're holding them back from growing in their character. We all need community to help us realign who we are in Christ. And if we're not doing that, we're holding each other back from the ways that we could be growing. And I think what this looks like, you have to have a level of maturity to be able to navigate this, but this is all part of growing, all right? What this looks like, I think, is saying, Brother, sister, (laughs) I love you. What you're doing here, it's, it's out of line with who you are in Jesus. And because I love you, you need to know that. Now, this is what we do as followers of Jesus. Let me reaffirm, this is who you are and this is how we, those of us who are identified in Christ, this is how we live. And so you are pointing out the error, but you're doing it in a way that doesn't sever the relationship or the love. And instead it's pointing us back to this is, this is what, who we are in Jesus. Healthy correction, it produces a proper shame for sin, but it maintains the relationship in love. And that's where character has the opportunity to get shaped. If your character never senses any shame for being off course, then there's no reason for you to change. There's no opportunity for your character to grow. And, you know, the best example that I've experienced of this, growing up in in Battelle, which is a ministry that my parents run that helps people out of long-term addiction, and you live in community, and I it helped me see this in lives, day in and day out. Because I would see how these men and women would come right off the street, right out of prison, after sometimes decades of, you know, behavior shaping their character in a very destructive way. And within a few days of being within that community, the swearing would stop. The, I mean, the drug use and the smoking and the drinking would stop because it wasn't there. The, the, the crude joking would mostly stop. <laughs> Why? How could you have such a radical shift 
in these external behaviors within such a short time. And it's because what's happening is they're stepping into a community with a very strong group identity of love, of, of, of change, of joy, but also with healthy correction. And so when the, someone turns up and they're using all the language that they usually would in their lives, they've got people around them that say, that's not, that's not what we do here. That's not who we are. This is how we talk. This is how we treat people. And so that correction produces a, just a little bit of that healthy shame that changes the character, that changes the behavior. And even, no, I didn't live in the community house growing up as a kid. Of course, we had our own family house. But every time I would leave the house, it got kind of annoying as a little kid. But now I see the, the, the wisdom in this of what they were doing. Every time I would leave the house, my parents would say, remember who you are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Remember who you are. And what they were doing, you know, unconsciously, what they were doing was reinforcing a group identity. And so when I'm in school, and I was the only Christian that I knew of in any of my schools, right up through university. Actually, no, I, I, met, I did meet some Christians in university, but all my school career, I didn't know any other Christians. And how was I able to maintain a sense of identity? Well, it was through that. It was through that constant reinforcement. And so what happened? <laughs> I don't know if I've told this part of my testimony here before, but I, I look back and I realize how that played out. When I was 12 years old, I had this conflict of potential identities. And we were at a church gathering and I, I, I kind of gave the middle finger to another girl in the, in the class, all right? I was like messing around as if I was dancing, but I was, you know, doing the middle finger. So <laughs> she tells on me, of course, and, you know, my parents come to me and they're like, we heard you did this. And I said, no, never. I would never do that. That's not who I am. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit used that moment as a 12-year-old. This, this was my awakening to my sinfulness, right? Because the Holy Spirit pointed right at my heart and said, of course you do that. You do that every single day at school and you love it. You, I, and I did, I kind of, I've always been creative with language. <laughs> and it was a moment of decision where I felt like the Holy Spirit challenged me to say, which one is your real you? Is it the school you or is it the home you? Is it the, the church you? And that was the first moment that I can look back and, and where I made a conscious choice. No, the church me is the real me. I want to belong to Jesus. I want to belong to his people. And I got baptized that year. And my friends, to this day, I don't talk to them very much, but anytime there's a reunion, anytime I see them, they say, remember the day Ian stopped swearing? And it was hilarious because I would like censor myself. It was ridiculous. But there was a night and day change that they saw. And, and so, it makes, me, it makes me think, 
if you don't have your group identity from God's people, you will get it from somewhere. Your brain functions that way. You have to be part of a group. The group tells you what is good and what's bad, who you are, who you're not, who you love, who your enemies are. All those things are contained within a group identity. And you will get it somewhere. And so as a father, it makes me think, if my kids aren't getting a strong sense of identity at home and in the, the, our community of faith, they will get it, but they're going to get it from their friends. They're going to get it from their teachers. They're going to get it from whatever subculture they gravitate to. As, as adults, there's so many that profess to belong to Christ. And I trust that they do. And yet, you see that they act more in line with what a different group value tells them is correct. Whether it's cultural group identity, whether it's an ethnic group identity, whether it's a political group identity, or, or whatever it is, you can see it reflected in the choices and the behavior and the language and the way that they treat people and the way that they think. All of those things. And so we have to be constantly cognizant. We have to be, if we're aiming to be followers of Jesus and placing our hope and our identity in him, we have to be constantly aware that is my true identity. Not even my family of origin, not my, my nation or my politics or whatever you know, group identity wants to impose itself over Christ. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we need each other to help live out that identity. It's not possible in isolation. And so one of the things that Selena and I have started doing as parents is that when, when our daughters are disobedient or they mess up, we start, I've tried to take this in of saying, this isn't who we are. This isn't what we do. Not just that's wrong, but this is not what we do. Here's what we do. We love each other. We respect each other. We, you know, the things that express the character of Jesus, this is what we do as a people. And so the very last thing to conclude kind of our analogy of learning the art of joy is this, that artists are formed by a particular technique. We're formed by a particular technique. You think, you look at all the, all the great artists through history, anyone that was apprenticed by them, taught by them, picked up a style, a technique that you can recognize. If it's an impressionist painter, well, you can recognize impressionist painting because there's a similar style. And so Paul points out six things that express who we are and what we do. We're going to run through these really quickly to finish. He says, I plead, starting from verse two, and we're going to skip. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, number one. Number two, in verse four, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Number three, let your gentleness, some translations say, let your reasonableness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Number four, do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, number five, think 
about these things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, six, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So there's an art to the joy that Jesus wants to give us. It comes through certain disciplines. It's reinforced in a group identity where we hold each other to account for who we are. And this is what it looks like, Paul says. And he's speaking specifically to his sisters here, remember? He says, be of the same mind. We belong to Jesus. So we don't allow rivalries and ambitions to divide us. That's not what we do. We are the people that love our enemies and lay down our lives for our friends. Do we sometimes disagree? Yes. But our minds are ultimately set on the same thing. And so, Mike Stauffer in our Bethlehem campus had a prophetic word that that he wanted to bring through this. He was sensing that there's a number of relationships within our congregation where they need to be of the same mind, where reconciliation needs to occur. And so if there's someone that you need to be reconciled with, Jesus said, you know, before you come offer your worship, before you come offer your sacrifice, put that down and go make it right with your brother or sister. Of course, sometimes that's very complicated. You need to bring other people in. But the thing is, we need to strive towards being of the same mind. Why? Because we're both citizens of heaven if we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, he says, rejoice always. We are citizens of heaven. And you know what? Heaven never has an economic downturn. Heaven's at war, but we're on the winning side. Heaven is not worried about all of the, you know, the talking points on the news, whether in recession or in boom, whether in peace or in war, whether in employment or unemployment, you are a citizen of heaven. You have a place, you have a vote, you have a role within God's kingdom. And so you always have reason to rejoice. Therefore, rejoice always, he says. Thirdly, he says, let your reasonableness be evident to everyone. I'm not sure how much the reasonableness of Christians has been made evident to the world in recent years. And that's not what we do as God's people. We are not those who insist on our rights. We belong to the one who laid down his rights and offered himself up to the cross for the sake of the lost, for the sake of those he loved. And so we are known as a people for our reasonableness, for our gentleness, whenever there's tension. Don't be anxious, he says. We are a people that don't, need to be anxious and worry about all the stuff of the world. Why? Because we're people who have a good heavenly father as our dad. Therefore, when we need, we ask. We don't need to connive, to manipulate, to force. We make our requests known. That's the dynamic of the kingdom. 
And then he gives this long list of virtues. And so I would summarize this by saying, make friends with virtue. We are citizens of heaven called to establish God's kingdom on earth. Therefore, we recognize, teach, celebrate truth, beauty, and goodness wherever we see it. And lastly, we're not a people who hears the word only, but we are a people that does the word, that puts it into practice. What we read and what we see in those who've been with Jesus. And so New Covenant, I believe the Lord is calling us to rediscover our joy. And that joy will take practice as a community. And so if you feel that you're struggling to live in that joy, you're not alone. It's natural. And we have to put it into practice together. And as we do that, I believe we're going to grow into a greater maturity, a greater joy, a greater love as a community. And so the joy of the Lord is not just something we experience, but it's an art that we master. It takes practice and we practice it together. So I'm going to offer an an invitation. If there's anybody here, if there's anyone watching online that has never said, Jesus, I want to belong to you. I want to find my identity in you. You have the opportunity right now, at any moment, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so you can come to him. You can talk to him in a simple prayer and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for how I've lived my life in a way that I know brings you shame. Thank you that you've forgiven me, that you love me enough to die on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose again from the dead so that I could have a new life. Please make me your child right now and give me your Holy Spirit. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Amen. And if you can make that commitment to him, he honors that that commitment of our hearts. And it says, anyone who's able to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in their hearts that he raised him from the dead will be saved. That's our faith. And so if you've done that today for the first time or whether it's a recommitment, you can put a hand up and someone will give you, our ushers will give you some information. If you're online, you can stay to the end of the stream and there'll be information for you because you're part of a family now. So let's stand together and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the joy that you came to give us. That joy that is our strength, that joy that you came to make complete. And Lord, as we seek you right now to restore, to rejuvenate, to rediscover those joys that we see in this letter, we pray that you give us your Holy Spirit. Empower us to live it out, to practice it. Lord, that this would be a community of joy, of love, of healthy, mature identity together. Lord, we ask you all of this. We ask you to release this joy in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. 
We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.